Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today... I'm standing outside of 39 St. Irvin's Road, W10. Just a few doors down from the home of Rennie Hanran. A six-minute walk south of where Scotch Maggie's body was dumped. And one street south of the addict who slayed an old lady so he could watch a Bond film. Coming soon to Murder Mile. It's ironic, but the old Victorian terraces they demolished to make way for these modern monstrosities now go for a song. During the slum clearances, 39 St. Irvin's Road was stripped, ripped and taken to the tip of everything to make hipsters called Fenella and Farquhar Fortescue have a wet dream. Like wrought iron railings, to display their collection of artisan vegan twigs. A tin bath to start a steampunk gin distillery. And a vintage bike so rusty, it's like a shit shoplifter stealing 80 bags of nuts and bolts. On Tuesday the 11th of March 1969, the day Scotch Maggie went missing, it would be proven that she'd come here to the shambolic lodging of a regular punter in this rundown three-story terrace. With lodgers on the same floor and neighbours on several floors below, this second-floor lodging at the rear of the house was the home of a man as equally as forgotten and unloved as Maggie. Seeing her not as a piece of pathetic human driftwood, but a pal to get drunk with. He would confess that her death was an accident, and as the police had believed, he had dumped her body out of sheer panic. But was that the truth, a lie, or an alibi? My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. And this is Murder Mile. Episode 209, Rags and Bones, Part 2.
for Detective Inspector North and Detective Superintendent Barnett, aspects of the crime scene at 140 Kensal Road didn't make sense. Wearing a blue half-sleeved jumper and a pair of casual trousers, it looked as if she'd been stripped and then dressed to remain indoors. With no shoes, no socks, no bra, no knickers and no suspender belt, the victim hadn't arrived in this abandoned house of her own accord. And with no signs of a struggle, no fresh bloodstains, and the suitcase, its binds, and the rags it was stuffed with, not originating from here. It was clear she'd been moved from elsewhere. Theorizing that her killer wouldn't have traveled far as he risked being seen. And with her body stuffed in a large discreet suitcase, as if he was dumping some rubbish, he may have transported her by taxi. Every local taxi firm was alerted, with every driver asked to check their logbooks for any drop-offs in or near Kensal Road between Tuesday the 11th and Thursday the 13th of March. But it proved to be fruitless. Having alerted the police to the victim's identity, although Robert Hartley, alias Wilford Williams, was a cruel drunk and a former mental patient with a violent past. It didn't mean that he didn't love her or that he didn't care, as his emotions at the news of her death would show the detectives. The police went door to door, questioning the neighbours around several blocks, and notified by Robert that several items of her clothing was missing. Her shoes, her underwear, and her black and green lady's coat. They searched bins, sacks, and side streets, and spoke to every rag merchant in the area. It was like trying to find a needle in a haystack. But if you think a needle is there, then it's worth searching. During their inquiries, officers visited A.T. Reed's, the premises of a rag and scrap metal merchant called Arthur Reed, based out of 110 Goldbourne Road, just off St. Irvine's Road. Making money from second-hand goods, he traded with totters. Often old men, wheeling squeaky handcarts about town, which were loaded with sackfuls of unwanted scrap, like ripped clothes, old books, odd bits of metal and broken suitcases. Asked if he knew of any recent deliveries from his totters, Arthur recalled, I had one guy I know only as Polish Joe. A small, weak pensioner who picked up odd bits around Portobello Road Market. I saw him on Wednesday the 12th of March at 11am, carrying an old mailbag full of rags. I remember saying to him, you've been robbing the post office, Joe. Not being fluent in English, he said, me not well, me not eat. 
walking with a pronounced stoop. He looked sick, but then he was prone to drink. This was the first time I'd seen him in months. I gave him ten shillings for the bag, but I haven't opened it. I never check the rags from Polish Joe, as they always look dirty, like they've come from a building site. Usually Arthur would send the sacks of rags straight to the rag factory for sorting. But this time, being a little bit behind with his work, it was still in his shop. Inside he would find a woman's black and green coat, a pair of green socks, a white suspender belt, a pair of white soiled knickers, and a set of false teeth. Later identified by Robert. Polish Joe had some of Maggie's clothes. But did he find them? Steal them? Or was he hiding them? Known as Polish Joe, Josef Balok was actually born in Hungary in 1905. Only no one would know that, as like Maggie, he was a nobody who meant nothing to no one. Like pathetic human driftwood. As Maggie had, Joe had fled his homeland as the Nazis rose to power. But unlike Robert Hartley, who wore fake medals to fleece many good people of their hard-earned cash, Polish Joe was a war hero. In 1939, he enlisted in the Polish army, fighting for the Allies. He served as a private in the infantry. He saw action and surviving unscathed until he was demobbed in the late 1940s. With the Hungarian borders restored, many natives feared returning to Hungary as being a satellite state of the Soviet Union. They feared the brutality of the Hungarian secret police, now under orders of the Soviet state. Especially those who were Hungarian Jews, like Josef Balog. After the war, he lived in Romania, where he learned his craft as a carpenter. And in 1957, he returned to England, living in London on a £9-a-week pension from the Polish army. Barely enough to live on, as a feeble man, with arthritic hands, a curved back, and a liver abused by conic drinking to curb his pain. Joe was not a well man. Joe became a totter simply to pay his way, as when he wasn't stood in the doorway of the Carnarvon Castle public house on Portobello Road. The squeaky wheel of his handcart, made of tubular steel with a large wooden box on top, could be heard from Goldbourne Road, to St Irvine's Road, to Oxford Gardens. 
it had been a while since Carpentry had made him any money. So although he still kept his tools and his apron made of white twill, it was his meagre money as a totter which kept his lonely life rolling on. Prone to drink and blighted by poverty, Joe had a criminal record for a few minor offences. On the 23rd of August 1965, in Marleybone, he was conditionally discharged for possessing a hatchet. And three times, in 1966, 1967 and 1968, he received three fines for being drunk and disorderly in a public space. It was said that as a drunk and a lonely man who found solace in sex workers, this was how Polish Joe met Scotch Maggie. As two outcasts from society who were forgotten by a world which did not care. He loaned her money, he brought her drinks, and he gave her first dibs on the clothes that he found. In 1966, at Joe's former lodging at 45 Fermoy Road, just shy of Meanwhile Gardens, PC Lank charged both Joe and Maggie for being drunk and disorderly, in an argument during which Joe hit Maggie. They later apologised, they remained friends, and as one of the few who truly knew her, he would call her Carol. For the last six months, Joe had been in a relationship with Mary Wood, a 59-year-old kitchen porter known as Daisy, who lived with him in the second-floor rear lodging of 39 St. Irvin's Road. But not being a fan of his foul temper, on Saturday the 8th of March, three days before Maggie's death, Mary left him. Joseph was lonely, sad, and looking for company. That day, according to Robert Hartley, Maggie left three Oxford Gardens at roughly 9.30am, wearing few of the clothes she would later be found dead in. A pair of blue jeans, a blue blouse, black leather shoes, and a black and green coat. Possibly seeking her daily quota of several bottles of wine and a punter to pay for her time. It's likely that she headed to Portobello Road Market, where Polish Joe was known to stand. As two outcasts forgotten by society, an old broken man and a poor fallen woman ravaged by drink and lost to time. It was easy for them to vanish, unseen and unheard, on a busy city street. As unless they were begging, swearing or causing a nuisance, most people would never acknowledge them. 
It was a dull day, but with bright daylight. When Joe popped his key in the lock and let Maggie into his shared home. Climbing the stairs, past three floors, in which eight couples and families lived, as they ascended to the top floor. With two lodgings, split by a thin partition wall, the tenants of the front top floor lodging, Cynthia and Roy Johnson and their two children, didn't hear Joe and Maggie enter the room. But then again, why would they? Joe's room was small, a cramped little hovel, occupied by a bed and a large wooden dresser. It was the kind of place you'd expect an old totter to live in. With almost no spare space, he had stuffed piles of clothes, books and boxes of whatnot into every possible slot. It was messy, but on his walks across Kenseltown and Notting Hill, he had acquired a few creature comforts, like a wireless radio, a small television, and a paraffin heater by the side of the bed, which he used for cooking and warmth. Thankfully, being a hoarder, the landlady let him store his squeaky old handcart, his tools, his hessian sacks, and anything he hoped to sell later in the basement. With the room piled high, with cracked paintings, broken electronics, books, twine, and a few large suitcases. In the police statement, Joe would admit, Before she come to me, she drunk anyway. She come my house three o'clock. I drink one bottle of beer, a big one. She drink the wine, me drink the beer. And being a big drinker, she demanded more wine. I buy her two bottles of wine and a half bottle of brandy. By this point, according to his statement, Maggie was intoxicated and struggling to sit upright on the edge of the bed. I told her she shouldn't drink it because I'm going to the laundrette on Goldbourne Road, which he did three times a week without fail. I left between 6 and 7 p.m. I went back at 7.30 p.m. Re-entering his room, he found Maggie collapsed on the floor, unconscious but breathing. Initially seen across her left eye and the crack of her mouth, a splash of blood had streaked as she had slipped off the bed in a drunken stupor. D.I. North would later find two small patches of dried blood of Maggie's group on the top of the paraffin heater, situated just two feet from the head of the bed. A statement later backed up by Joe, who would state, When I got home, she knocked head on paraffin heater it fall over and go out. As determined by Dr. Donald Tear, the pathologist, 
The hemorrhage to her brain was consistent with a heavy blow or a fall, possibly two or three. As with bruises to all four limbs, her stomach, her right buttock, and the only scratch to the knuckle of her right little finger. With no signs of a struggle, they could have occurred in a comatose fall, being too drunk to use her arms to protect her head. Among a sea of old bruises and an explosion of red across her nose, these new bruises, the pathologist would state, were likely to have occurred within 12 hours of her death. Which begs the question, why he didn't call for help if she was unwell? Was he too drunk? Too afraid? Or with her conscious and breathing, as the booze dulled her swelling pain? Did it not seem too serious as he put her to bed? It is uncertain whether she had undressed herself, if she was already naked, or if Joseph had dressed her in pajama-like clothes. But the blue half-sleeve jumper and the grey casual trousers she was found in were not hers. And although Robert Hartley would state that before she got into bed, she always got completely undressed. Not only were her blue jeans and blue blouse missing, but so was her underwear. According to Joe, he nursed her through the night, stating, Wednesday, she all day sick. A head-shaped pool of blood was later found in a congealed mess about her pillow, dotted with strands of her graying hair. To keep her warm, he said he wrapped her in a bedspread, knitted together with several multicolored woolen sheets, which along with his white twill apron, was later found stuffed into the suitcase with her body. And as she slept, and her brain bled, she slowly drifted into a coma, and then to her death. Trapped in a small cramped room, with a dead woman, whose head wounds, even an expert, wouldn't be able to determine whether they were committed by a fist or a fall, suggesting either foul play or an accident. Coming from a Soviet-run country, where brutality corruption and confessions were routinely beaten out of the innocent. Joe, the frail elderly totter, as the detectives would predict, had panicked. Joe would state, when she died, I got very fright. But knowing he had to do something to get her dead body as far away from him as possible, he didn't pop her into a taxi as the detectives had incorrectly deduced. Instead, he used his skills as a totter. A man with a handcart, some sacks, an old suitcase, and an encyclopedic knowledge of every derelict house for miles around. Having searched every room, seeking a few odds and sods to salvage and to sell. 
If anyone had been seen wheeling a squeaky handcart down the dawnlit streets of Kentle Town, with a large wooden box on top, as inside an old battered suitcase hid the dead body of a prostitute, it would have looked odd. Only being a shambling old man, going about his job, pushing an old squeaky handcart full of unwanted crap as he did every day. Joseph the Totter was unseen, forgotten, and invisible. The problem was, being elderly, weak, and infirm, his disposal wasn't the swiftest or the quietest. At 1am, Philomena Charles, a tenant in the front first floor room, heard a noise. Later stating, a door was banging. It was shaking the house. I didn't go upstairs to see what it was. I went to bed. As like everyone else, she was so used to hearing Joe's noise. As he brought back odd things and strange women at all hours of the night. Cynthia Johnson, Joseph's neighbour, would state, At about 2am, I was awoken by a noise of Joe leaving his room and going downstairs. Then I heard a terrible noise outside, the banging of metal and things. As Joe rummaged around in the basement for a large suitcase, and a red, black, and yellow wire to bind it as the lock was broken. During which time, he stuffed Maggie's body into the suitcase, with her knees tucked right up to her chin. At 5.30am, just as dawn was breaking, Cynthia recalled, I heard Joseph's radio going, It was turned up loud. I didn't hear him in his room or on the stairs. But just like Philomena, outside I saw his handcart. Joseph had something heavy on it, covered with a black coat. And then he went down the street. Being just a six-minute walk or a 12-minute totter, from 39 St. Irvins Road to 140 Kensal Road. The witnesses stated he returned 30 minutes later, only the large box was empty. This sighting went unseen by almost everyone else along their journey. But with Cynthia and Philomena being black, and Polish Joe prone to drunken racist outbursts, There was no love lost when the police made door-to-door inquiries about a suspicious man seen with a large suitcase or a box at roughly that time. Discovering the sack at Arthur Reed's rag merchants just one street away, which contained some of Maggie's clothes and a smashed set of her false teeth. The case was as good as closed. Knocking on his door, Joseph let the police in. They sealed the crime scene, and he was promptly taken in for questioning. 
held at Harrow Road Police Station on Friday the 14th of March. Initially, he denied everything, including knowing Maggie or being in the abandoned house. But being confronted with the evidence, he confessed to the unlawful disposing of her body, but he flatly denied that her death was anything to do with him. When charged, Joseph would state, I not kill her. It was the wine. Tried on the charge of murder at the Old Bailey on the 10th of July 1969, the prosecution would state, Joseph Barlock had repeatedly beaten Margaret Cameron over the head, given his prior offence for assaulting her. Whereas the defence would claim that while insensibly drunk, she fell, hitting her head. The evidence was stacked against him. He said that she had died owing to drink, but her blood contained 30 milligrams of alcohol per 100 milliliters of blood. A blood alcohol level which was too low for a woman who had supposedly drank so much. He said that she had hit her head on the paraffin heater while he was out at the laundrette. Only no one saw him there. And with Dr. Rufus, a noted neurologist, stating that her brain hemorrhage was the result of several blows or falls. Three strikes from her fist seemed plausible. But for a woman to fall from the bed, hitting her head on a paraffin heater three times. That was too much of a coincidence. There were other details which made no sense. Why there was a bruise on the inside of her right thigh. Why the crotch of her knickers were stained with her blood. Why an undetermined semen stain was later found on her suspender belt and why, when at 10am on the Wednesday, when Maggie was still alive, in his handcart, Joe delivered a sack to Arthur Reed, which contained some of her missing clothes. In court, Detective Superintendent Barnett would attest Joseph Ballock intimates a defense that she met her death as the result of a drunken fall whilst alone in his room. Evidence to disprove this lies in the bruises found on her body, being inconsistent with his story. In particular, it may be through the cunning and callous manner in which he disposed of this woman's body, which leaves no doubt that she met her death as a result of a vicious and possibly prolonged beating at the hands of the accused. Joseph Ballock was as good as guilty, but with no eyewitnesses to her death, no proof that he disposed of her body, and no acts of aggression seen or heard prior to the wounds being inflicted. Unable to prove anything, 
after 20 minutes of deliberation, he was acquitted of all charges and walked free. Polish Joe the Totter returned to his home that night, and he died a few years later of alcoholism. But was he innocent? Or being invisible to the world, had the investigation missed a little detail in his past? In his minor criminal record, it lists four convictions. Three for being drunk and disorderly, and one for possessing an offensive weapon. But that's not the full story. In 1966, he was tried at the Old Bailey for assault, GBH, and shooting with intent. It was said that on the morning of the 13th of June, 1966, Kathleen Carmody, a young Irish woman said to be of eccentric habits, heavy drinking and fraternising with men, met Joseph Ballock when he saw her sitting on a bench outside of a public house on Harrow Road and he invited her back to his room for some wine. Returning to his squalid lodging at 45 Fermoy Road, where he had once assaulted Scotch Maggie, I was sitting on the edge of his bed, two bottles of wine later, when he suggested I go to bed with him. Although homeless, she finished her wine, and she got up to leave. Only being an angry little man with a short fuse and bulging pants, Joseph was not the type to take no for an answer. She would state, he picked up a stool and hit me over the side of the head with it. He then tore off my shirt, my trousers, and took off my underclothes. I was left with nothing on at all. And as this terrified girl prepared to flee, he pulled out an air gun and shot me in the right knee. Bleeding from a head wound and screaming at the top of her lungs, Kathleen ran out into Harrow Road, where she was found by a female constable and taken to Paddington Hospital. Charged at Harrow Road Police Station, he denied knowing Kathleen, owning an air pistol, bringing a girl back to his room And when he was asked why his shirt was blooded, he blamed it on a nosebleed. Tried at the Old Bailey, with no eyewitnesses, not enough hard evidence, and with Kathleen changing her story and failing to turn up at court for the trial, Joseph was acquitted of a crime remarkably similar to what had happened to Maggie. A drunk a sex worker and a forgotten woman who had been used up, spat out and dumped in an abandoned house amongst a mess of unwanted rubbish.
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, oh, Christ. Oh, that was a long and hard one. Ooh, uh, missus. Oh, my God. Oh, oh, boats all around me have their engines on. Oh, it's because it's wet out and everyone's everyone's like, oh, I'm going to sit indoors. Oh, it's a bit crap. I'm going to put my engines on. I'm going to play on the PlayStation. Oh, and as you can hear, it's very rainy outside and it's not a good place to record inside a boat because the roof is made of steel and when you get a single raindrop on the roof, it echoes around the boat. Oh, anyway... Oh, welcome to Extra Mile, unscripted, unedited. I'm going to have a nightmare editing this. This is going to be a real pig to edit. Not looking forward to this. Right. Oh, I'm going to put my little hat on. I've taken off your hat. I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a cup of tea. Let's have a cup of tea. You can hear that. You probably can't hear the rain pissing down outside, but it is pissing, pissing down outside. Absolutely pissing down. Although I shouldn't, I shouldn't be saying pissing down because I really need the toilet right now. I really desperately need the toilet, but I don't think we're at that point in uh, in our podcasting relationship where um, I can disappear off and uh, go to the toilet. I don't think we're at that point yet. So, cup of tea on. Haven't got any cake because I'm still I'm still on my diet. Not that it's working. I'm still a fat bastard, but um, I've been really good. I sometimes have like a little cinnamon bun when I'm uh, on my way to the, uh, when I'm at the co- coffee shop, but. That's pretty much it. Oh, I really need a wee now. This is not this is not good. But we've still got to do all this. Oh. Anyway, what's going on? Uh, before we started, I had a nice chat with uh, Adam from UK True Crime, which was lovely. Unfortunately, he he, he called me. It's like normally my phone's not on, but because I was in between finishing writing this and recording, uh, my phone was on. And he called me, and just that, I had to send him a message saying, I uh, would love to talk to you. We'll call you back in two minutes. I'm right in the middle of a plop. <laughs> so there you go. That's how you start a conversation with someone. Hey, mate, how are you doing? All is well. Just having a plop. <laughs> so I can't, I can't talk to someone when you're having a plop. It's just, 
I, I can't talk to people on phones in public spaces. Uh, everyone who knows me knows. Like, if I'm if I'm in the supermarket, I'm not one of these arseholes who can walk around and go, yeah, mate, yeah, 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 I'm just in the supermarket, yeah, tell me all about your piles. Do you know, I can't, I, I don't like, I can't have a conversation in a, a coffee shop either. I like, I don't like other people being around. I get very distracted. I, I'm happy to have a conversation in the boat. Don't like that. I'm all right having a conversation while I'm walking somewhere, but even with that, I don't like that. Do you know, I like conversations should be private. I don't like these people who walk around and have conversations in the middle of spaces and tell the world what they're up to. Normally, it's not much. Normally, it's not much. You see people with those Bluetooth headsets. Normally, they haven't got a lot on. Maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe they do. Uh, so what else is going on? <coughs> going on in the world? Not much. Not much, really. <coughs> oh, I need. I need to drinky quick. Oh, throaty throat throat. Mm. So, um, just powering through the research for the rest of the uh, cases for the rest of the year. We've got some interesting ones coming up. Uh, as always, loads of cases that you won't have heard anywhere else because. I haven't heard of them and I approach them fresh and like this one as well there's nothing you can you can google it if you like but there's there's almost nothing out there it's almost non-existent and I think that's what I I, I like to aim for for Murder Mile is finding cases that no one's ever heard of I, I, I get bored of people you always see someone going oh there's a new podcast coming out and it's especially now with all the celebrities wanting to get involved in it because they're bored they're out of work and uh, when you look at the podcast, it's like, oh, episode one, Ted Bundy. And you just go, haven't we heard all these stories before? What really going to... Unless someone's an investigator and they've, they've got some really, really, really good, interesting facts that no one's ever heard of. Great. If not, why focus on a case that's already been covered? Or, and do it badly. Like, you know, Fred and Rose West. If you're going to do Fred and Rose West, do a, an eight-parter or a ten-parter because it's a big story. Not a one-parter or a two-parter. There's... Ugh. Just... Anyway, anyway, oh, why am I making a tea? I really need to wee, and I, it just doesn't make sense. Oh, let, let me let that brew. Let it stew for a bit. Let's do the quiz questions, and I'll go back and get my tea, which, of course, I won't drink, because I, I, I tend not to. I don't like drinking during the episode either. Uh, but there we go. Um, quiz questions. Let's do these, and then we'll dive into some extra stuff. So, question number one. Uh, what was the don't forget I haven't edited the episode yet so I might balls up the questions and I haven't done the extra stuff in the episode so I might give away some of the answers shortly uh, question number one what was the name of the rag and scrap metal merchant who Polish Joe gave the sack of rags to or sold the sack of rags to <coughs> Ooh, hiccups and burpees question number two how much money was Joe given for the sack of rags Question number three, in what country was Joseph born? Question number four, uh, after the war, in which country did Joseph live before he came to Britain? Question number five, how much did Joe say Maggie drank? Question number six, what police station was Joe taken to? Question number seven, what three creature comforts did Joe have in his room? Question number eight, who or what did Joe say killed Maggie? Question number nine, how long did the jury deliberate uh, the case in court? 
And question number 10. Uh, what was the name of the woman whose body was found in the canal barely 100 metres from this spot, as heard about in an earlier episode of Murder Mile? There you go. Uh, let me just grab my tea and I'll be back. Oh, oh I so need to wee. So need to wee. Busting for a wee wee. The last thing I need to think about is water and anything liquidy. And uh, it's not made any easier getting older. God, I can't hold on to wheeze anymore. Oh, I remember being young and having a bladder where you could hold on to a wee all day. It's not there anymore, is it? Uh, right, let's dive into some extra details. So, uh, Joe, Polish Joe, Josef Balok. Some people call him Joseph. His proper name was Josef Balok. Uh, 34 years old. Uh, came from I'm not going to tell you because that's a quiz question he'd uh, he'd only been in the flat it wasn't really a flat it's kind of a single room on the top floor at the back of 39 St Irvins Road which isn't there anymore um, as mentioned at the start of the episode uh, St Irvins Road, Road is the same place where we had uh, Rene Hanrahan who was the, the, the lady who was kind of stalked by her inverted commas uncle who eventually dumped her body on Regent's Park um uh, which is kind of a weird old case. So they were, they were. I think they were at like numbers two or three. Another boat going past. Uh, but this is thirty nine. So this is uh, two thirds of the way down the road. Uh, not there anymore. It's, all these buildings have been entirely demolished. Big old wide beam going past with a satellite dish on top and covered in um, covered in solar panels. <sighs> get a flat, people. Just go and get a flat. Oh. I had to pick up my tea so it doesn't spill because he's going past too fast in his ridiculously sized boat. There we go. Uh, Joseph was five foot six. He walked with a stoop, uh, prone to drinking, had a bit of a short temper. People really didn't know that much about him, but that's because, you know, uh, as as mentioned in this episode, he's very much like Maggie in in the the fact that there are many people in society that people just ignore. They're just like rather not have anything to do with them and i think polish joe was definitely like that as was maggie being a, a drunk both being drunks really um his regular haunt where he would keep so he's uh his little handcart uh if you're a patron subscriber you can see a, a photo of the original handcart on there uh and the wooden box on top uh he would stand outside of the carnarvon castle public house which is, uh, it's not there anymore. The building is still there. It's been renamed and it's uh, a 10 Portobello Road. So right on Portobello Market. Um, if you, if you watch, Notting Hill, so, there you go. A little bit of a, a Hugh Grant impression there. Terrible one. Um, you see them walking down through the market. That's Portobello Market, Portobello Road Market there. So, um, where he hung out was at the corner of the market it kind of makes sense it's a busy market he could pick up a lot of cast off stuff and then take it to the the rag market uh, rag and merchant man around the corner so that's what he did he sold uh old bits of coat frocks doorknobs anything that was kind of secondhand uh why um obviously he came he came over here when kind of world war Two started we don't know why he really didn't go back. I've kind of had to hypothesize the fact that uh, 
because he was Hungarian, because there was a lot of animosity still against Jews in different countries. Um, I, a lot of Hungarians post-World War II didn't want to go back to Hungary as well. I, I, I kind of got bits and pieces of this from uh, the biography of Bela Lugosi. He was the same. He was a Hungarian uh, actor. He didn't want to go back to Hungary afterwards because he knew that he would be... Even though he hadn't done anything wrong, because he'd lived in the West... Um, and it was very much a, a, a satellite state of the Soviet Union. He knew that if he went back to Hungary, it was more than likely he would be arrested and imprisoned. Um, so hence, quite a few Hungarians rightly made the decision not to go back to Hungary. Some did. Uh, what else? We, we know that he was trained as a carpenter. Um, let's dive into some details that I didn't get to in the episode. So he, uh, he did have his criminal record. So 23rd of August, 1965, at Marlebone. Uh, he was charged with uh, possessing a uh, an offensive weapon. Fifth uh, of April, nineteen sixty-six, at Marleybone, uh, charged with being drunk and disorderly in a public place. He was fined one pound. Tenth uh, of January, nineteen sixty-seven, again drunk and disorderly, fined one pound. Twelfth of June, nineteen sixty-eight, drunk and disorderly, fined ten shillings. Uh, and it was with one of these as well that he was fined. Uh, uh, being drunk and disorderly with Maggie. But he wasn't ch charged with assaulting her because it was it. It may have been that the police just were like they just didn't seem to care. Um, so that was 1966 that happened. Uh, police constable Gordon Lang uh, arrived at 45 Fermoy Road, which is just just slightly north of Meanwhile Gardens, just above the canal. Uh, and uh, in that house, it seems as if he was living there with Maggie and Maggie's sister, Mrs. Painton. Or they both seem to be there at the same time. There's very little about that, what happened there at that point. We know, I, I was going to put this in the episode, but it didn't work its way in because there was a lot too much to tell and it kind of confused the story. Um, he was briefly living with uh, Mary Wood, known as Daisy. Uh, who was his girlfriend um she was a kitchen porter unemployed around that point living off a widow's pension they'd spent six months living together at uh, bassett road which uh w10 which is by portobello road market uh very unfairly everyone who seems to describe her describes her as a fat woman very lovely very pleasant um they met in a pub she knew him as Joseph Barlow. That seems to be his anglicised name. If you look at it, his, his real name is Yosef Balok, but he's gone with Joseph Barlow because it's about as anglicised as he can make it, as a lot of people did then, so they could kind of blend in. Uh, 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 she said, a few times Joseph mentioned to her a woman named Carol. Now, don't forget that Carol is Maggie's. The, the kind of name that people who knew Maggie really well would call her Carol. Uh, uh, he said she was a bad woman and he used to give her two shillings now and again and that uh, if he did not give it to her, she would call him a Polish bastard. Well, there you go. Uh, uh, he seems to be a person who knows a lot of prostitutes in the area, so this seems to be a regular thing that he does. Uh, he doesn't seem to uh, uh, have any family. He doesn't seem to have any children. Um, as part of the alibi, when they were questioning her, because they, they, part of his alibi was, oh, well, do you know, uh, I wasn't in the house. I wasn't in the flat when she hit her head. Uh, I was at the laundrette. And they actually checked with Daisy, or Mary Wood as her 
name actually is and she said yeah yeah yeah. he he regularly went to the laundrette two or three times a week uh, over on goldborn road it was normally a monday a wednesday or a friday Uh, this would have been a Tuesday uh, and she said he collected his pension every Monday morning at 9.30am so this is part of his problem, he is a creature of habit and she said he used to come back from the laundrette at 5pm he never did that in the evenings and she uh, he said that if Maggie had hit her head on the um, uh, the uh, paraffin heater, it was somewhere between 6 and 7 o'clock and he didn't arrive back until like half past 7 so He's already trying to put in a bit of an alibi there. Uh, we know that the... I didn't put this in the episode as well because it kind of seemed a little bit too obvious and we kind of gone through it. But um, the police were able to... They spoke to Mary and they said, right, we've got all these exhibits, the brown suitcase, the bedspread, the multicolored bedspread, the apron that was made of white twill. And twill is the kind of thick kind of cotton material that you use if you're a carpenter and she was able to go in she went yeah i reckon here's the words i recognize the bedspread uh which is also which i also saw in joseph's room he kept it on his bed so she was able to confirm that she also confirmed that the uh apron was his white twill one uh witnesses at the time uh cynthia johnson who lived uh top floor front room joseph lived top floor back room at 39 st Irvin's road she lived there with her husband Roy and two children uh, Joseph had been there for a little over a year uh, she said uh, he always had a woman in his room we did not speak to them just before Christmas a fat woman stayed with him that would be Mary poor old Mary uh, I asked uh, I last saw her on Friday the 7th of March this was going to go into the episode as well Joseph had a whole uh back uh an alibi in there he he said oh yeah no my my uh my girlfriend had left just that morning on the wednesday morning i was with her the night before she's gone missing she's go- gone to liverpool or something police were able to track down daisy aka aka mary they found her in liverpool she said no no i definitely left left on friday the 7th i've been in liverpool ever since he's uh he's been by himself all that time um cynthia johnson said on wednesday the 12th of march at about 2 a.m i was in bed with my husband who was a sound sleeper when i was awoken by the noise of someone leaving the room next to the door i heard what i thought was uh balok as she calls him going downstairs um they're on the top floor uh when i heard a terrible noise outside the banging of metal and things about half an hour later i heard him come back into the house and go into his room he closed the door and opened it again and closed it again there was no more noise after that um she said at five thirty a.m probably nearer 6 a.m uh i got ready for work she was a factory hand at, at a local hall um i think i heard joseph's radio going it was turned up loud I did not hear him in his room or on the stairs, but outside I saw his trolley, his handcart, just outside the house. Um, with uh, you can tell the kind of era this is, because uh, with um, this is an era kind of in, in and around the era of the kind of the race riots that was going on. So uh, the St Irvin's Road was a predominantly black neighbourhood, and on the police report, even on here, it goes uh, direct quote: "Mrs Johnson is a coloured woman." Uh, a fairly, a fairly reliable if reluctant witness so with everyone who is uh who's black they always go uh, 
the witness is black the witness is colored as they say uh, the other one philomena charles she is also a colored woman cohabiting with her husband uh willie juan both witnesses are illiterate so i always find I always find these statements really interesting um philomena charles also said uh, he used a room in the basement to store his things he keeps the door to the basement locked between 11 p.m and midnight i heard a noise a banging door it was shaking the house so it's amazing that he's trying to get rid of a body and he's going around banging all the doors could be that he was drunk could be that he's partially deaf uh could be that joe being a little bit weak and uh it's mentioned in uh i think when the, the, I, I might get to this in a bit he had a couple of cracked ribs as well uh she said i didn't go upstairs to see what it was i went to bed i woke up about half past five in the morning and gave my children some tea at some time to six uh, i heard a noise of someone going from upstairs downstairs i didn't open the door but i opened the window and i saw joseph had something heavy which he put down by the front door uh, he went to the basement took his trolley brought it up to the front door and put it in the trolley he covered it in a black coat and then he went down the street um, he was umming and ahhing with the police for a absolutely ages trying to come up with his alibi going oh i don't know m anyone called maggie or carol i've never been to that abandoned house uh, i don't own a bedspread but when the it didn't take long the police basically turned around and said uh his words we have tracked down daisy woods she has identified articles shown to you the bedspread the apron the suitcase as coming from your house uh they uh inside the suitcase was found the body of margaret Car cameron or carol as she was called do you want to say anything about that joseph replied all right i tell the truth now carol came to my house last tuesday afternoon i buy her two bottles of wine before she come to me she drunk anyway she come to my house three o'clock i drank one bottle of beer a big one carol she drunk the wine me drink the beer six or seven o'clock i go to the laundry in goldborn road for one and a half hour maybe one hour i stay at laundry i go home carol sleeping on floor so that's that's she's hit her head uh wednesday she all sick he said when i won't read it in his thing but basically he said uh when he got home carol was bleeding a little bit on the left eye and he pointed to the corner of his mouth as well um when i go home from laundry i put carol on bed she was lie down by paraffin fire when i go home she knock head on paraffin fire it fall over and go out carol all night all day in bed wednesday wednesday night 10 o'clock 11 o'clock she die when carol die i very fright i got one big box from basement i put carol in very big box by box you mean suitcase uh, eight o'clock next morning i put her in barrow with mattress bag on box so it wasn't a mattress it was kind of a a, a, a kind of a wrapper for it i take her to empty house kensal road i put her in there with box carol die because 
Oh, I almost I almost gave away on the questions then. Oh, there we go. Um, just when he was being interviewed while he was there as well, uh, he c- complained of feeling unwell. The divisional surgeon was called and recommended that Joseph be taken to Paddington Hospital, which is just around the corner. He was examined by Dr. Pa- Parker the next day and was found to have a large bruise and four cracked ribs to the left of his chest. Uh, Joseph stated this injury was about three weeks old and the doctors had a look at it and they confirmed it was an old injury and he was fit to stand trial. So that could be why he was making so much noise was he was finding it difficult to carry things because he's old, he's weak, he's got a stooped back. But also, anyone who, like me, has had uh, cracked ribs, core, blimey, it's almost impossible to do anything. It really is. Let me quickly dive into some... uh, to one other thing that I didn't get to put into the episode, uh, but it shows kind of his mentality. So when Joseph used to live on uh, 45 Fermoy Road, um, the report states there were 16 coloured tenants uh, and he was the only person in the house who was white. So it's, all of this area is very much kind of um, where a lot of the um, the uh, West Indian community would kind of live and it's... Uh, predominantly a west indian area he he needed somewhere cheap to live so he was living with all these west indian people but he's got a bit of a got a bit of a well not a bit a racist streak and also he's he's um he's drunk a lot of the time as well he said the uh, well it was said in the report the colored tenants were trying to get him out by breaking into his room stealing his cash and repeatedly beating him with sticks according to him uh, he appeared in the dock, charged with possession of an offensive wet weapon, a hatchet, and pleaded not guilty. Uh, as being a carpenter, this was one of the tools of his trade. Uh, police were called on the Saturday afternoon to find him fighting five coloured men. Both parties clashed violently. PC had to drag Balog into his room. PC then heard a scream and saw Balog in the back garden wave- waving a hatchet towards a coloured woman. Balog said, I dare not sleep some nights. Uh, he claimed he'd been beaten up by them. In court, Balog was described as being of good character, except for his drunkenness. He was discharged, uh, and it was pointed out that if he drank less, he would get into less trouble. So that kind of it kind of sums up who Joseph is at that point. He kind of comes across as a bit of an old frail man, but he's a bit of a racist, a bit of a drunk, a lot of a racist, a lot of a drunk, quite a violent man. When 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 things don't go his way. Um, the report that this is kind of what was interesting when when i was going through joseph's life in the police report it it said that he'd been charged with um uh an offensive weapon charge but there was other bits in there so i started searching for joseph's back history and trying to see if there was any reports in newspapers anywhere because you know someone drunk and disorderly might not appear in the paper but offensive weapon most likely and given so i thought let's go searching and then i've managed to find this article uh 29th of july 1966 in the marleybone mercury which is a local paper um a drinking session between a hungarian clothes dealer and an irish woman uh, joseph of fermoy road was accused of malicious wounding of catherine carmody they've misspelled it they've written marmody uh, with intent to cause grievous bodily harm and shooting at her uh, with like intentions. The victim is a young woman of somewhat eccentric habits, inclined to drift around, living with young, living with men, uh, as long as they may have her. On the morning of the 13th of June 
1996, she was sitting on a bench outside of a public house on Harrow Road. So Harrow Road runs, you've got Harrow Road, and then one road down, you've got Fermoy Road, and then you miss a road, and then, then you've got the canal, and then you've got Kensal Road. So Harrow Road to Kensal Road, not even a minute, not even a minute's distance apart from each other. Uh, so she was sitting on a bench outside of a public house, unknown which one, on Harrow Road, when the defendant, Joseph, approached and invited her back to his room for some wine. Mm, does that sound familiar? Which is why I think it's most likely that Maggie probably Maggie probably uh, met Joseph and he invited her back to his flat. Not, not, as he kind of says, her turning up at his flat, drunk with bottles in her hand. Uh, he invited her back to his room for some wine. She accepted and she was sitting on the edge of the bed and two bottles of wine later, two bottles of wine again, there you go, uh, jo Ballock suggested that she go to bed with him. Miss Carmody of No Fixed Address told the court that she wanted to leave after finishing her wine, but for some reason the defendant uh, said he did not want her to go. Uh, he picked up a stool and hit me across the side of her head with it, she said. Uh, I don't know why he did this. Um, interestingly, it, I think what seems to go wrong here is with Maggie, he seems to, if if this is a murder, he seems to have rendered her unconscious and she's out, she's spark out. Whereas with Catherine here, he hits her over the head. She's she's not drunk or not as drunk. She's clearly younger and fitter. She gets a, a cut to the head, as said, but she's dazed, but she's still conscious uh, she said, my head was cut and he took me into the bathroom and started washing the blood away. He then tore off my shirt and trousers and took off my underclothes. I was left with nothing on at all. He told me to go back to the bedroom. I put on a shirt and some trousers belonging to him. So that's similar as well. You see how uh, Maggie left her house and she was wearing blue jeans, a blue top uh, and the, the green and black coat and black uh, leather shoes, none of which were ever found, but she was found wearing a pair of uh, pyjama-like clothes. And it's likely that these came from his collection of rags that he probably would have uh, got on his rounds, or he would have given to the uh, the, rag and, the rag merchant. So again, similar there. Um, uh, so yeah, I put on the clothes and some trousers belonging to him. So th there again, she... Uh, she's wearing a shirt and trousers but no underwear underneath so that seems to be again that's another similarity seems to be there but this is because she's still conscious uh, she says as I was preparing to leave he then produced uh, an air gun and shot me in the right knee knee that's what's different to the other the Maggie story but don't forget Maggie is unconscious uh, Kathleen is not uh, she said uh, I ran out into the street into Harrow Road where I was found by a female PC and taken to the hospital Detective Sergeant Lacey told uh, said Balog at first completely denied that the woman had been in his room uh, and when asked where the blood on his shirt had come from he said she had a nosebleed See, again, when he went to the police, again at Harrow Road here, um, he denied everything. I was going to make this a bigger thing in the story, but I just, I, I felt, I felt we'd kind of, we covered it enough there. Um, police found Miss Carmody's clothing in his room, along with an air rifle. When later charged at the police station, here we go, here comes the racism. Uh, when later charged at the police station, Balok said, A black woman brought the woman to my room last night. She was bleeding then. 
uh, I got in bed uh, she got in bed with me and sleep blood on my shirt back then black woman bring her you know black woman <laughs> well there you go there's a case closed there isn't it uh, Balog was uh, committed for bail for trial at the old bailey he pleaded not guilty and reserved his right to his defence um as mentioned in the episode because kathleen kept changing her story we don't know why she kept changing her story it could have been could be a head injury um because there wasn't enough evidence to prove that she was in the room you know all different things like that he was again he was acquitted uh so because they couldn't charge him with anything it doesn't appear on his um doesn't appear on his police uh, his criminal record so there you go could have been uh, was joseph a uh, a potential multiple murderer in the making did he murder murder maggie i think it i think it's likely that he probably did did he almost try and kill uh, kathleen carmody i think it's almost likely that he probably did uh did ha, did he potentially commit other attacks i think it's also likely isn't it i think it is so there you go another potential multiple uh multiple murderer found by murder mile you're welcome that's that's why i like doing all the hard work to put all the research in because it's i i like uncovering these little details i like uncovering cases that no one's ever heard of but also being able to like with a Soho strangler you know i was having a nice chat with um someone who's a producer and a journalist the other day and they were like this is this is a fascinating brilliant piece of work it's like why has no one done this before and i was like because it's too hard it's it's hard to get all these pieces together but it's what i enjoy i do it because i love it if i didn't love it i wouldn't do it but like i like i like solving puzzles i like piecing things together and going "Mm, did that happen that way and uh finding connections and with joseph as well finding that back history of him and kathleen carmody it's just it's suddenly it takes you from a story of where he could be telling the truth he could be saying do you know what i'm i'm an old frail man she fell over a couple of times and hit her head on if you think about it, it is a cramped room so if she's going to get out of bed she's going to get out of bed she's going to put her foot down she's going to reach for a glass of water she's going to stumble could she could conceivably hit her head on the same place a couple of times when I, when i first moved into a house years ago with my dad and my stepmom it was an old house and uh every single day because my stepmom's little and me and my dad are kind of roughly around six foot every single day for like the first three weeks she would find either me or my dad or both of us outside one of the bedrooms collapsed on the floor and it's because because the door the top of the door was a little bit shorter than we were used to so we kept hitting our head on 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 the door every single day now is that a coincidence Uh, yeah could you say it, it never happened possibly because it's so because you go oh my god these guys have been had they've got definite bumps on their heads because of an injury to the same door but it did happen it's just you know we weren't drunk it was just it's a a height of a door that we weren't used to so there we go it is possible but is joseph a murderer yes i think a case closed there murderer and a racist and a drunk there we go um so let's do the quiz questions and then i can go and have that pee i've been waiting for a pee i'm literally got my legs crossed uh so question number one what was the name of the rag and scrap metal merchant who polish joe gave the sack of rags to his name was arthur reed question number two how much money did joe give 
for the sack. Uh, how much money was Joe given for the sack of rags? It was 10 shillings. Question number three. In what country was Joseph born? Hungary. Question number four. After the war, in what country did Joseph live before he came to Britain? Uh, Romania. Question number five. Uh, how much did Joe say Maggie drank? It was two bottles of wine and half a bottle of brandy. Although, as mentioned in the episode, when you look at the toxicology report, uh, they didn't actually find that much alcohol in her system, which is interesting, isn't it? Given the fact of uh, how much he said she drank, she was he said she was drunk before she even turned up. I'm going to have to stop talking because I really need to piss. Question number six. What police station was Joe taken to? That was... Harrow Road. Hello! Question number seven. What three creature comforts did Joe have in his room? It was a wireless radio, a black and white... Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Like television and a paraffin heater. So there you go. Not everyone had a, had a TV in the uh, late 1960s. I think we only had our first one uh, early 1980s. Shut up, Michael. You need to have a piss. Question number eight. Who or what did Joe say killed Maggie? It was Wayne. Question number... Number nine, how long did the jury deliberate in the court case? It was 20 minutes. 
And question number 10, what was the name of the woman whose body was found in the canal barely 100 metres from this spot as seen in the earlier episode of Murder Mile? God, that was a long question, especially as I need to piss. Uh, her answer, uh, the, the answer was Lena Cunningham. One of my favourite episodes, I think. That's me done, folks. I'm going to go and have a piss. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for listening to Murder Mile and I'll catch you all soon. Stay safe and be good. Lots of love. Piss o'clock. Bye bye. <laughs>